This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 13, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. How the future will unfold technologically is anyone's guess, and someone willing to take plenty of guesses is David D. Friedman in his new book, Future Imperfect, Technology and Freedom in an Uncertain World. We spoke following a book forum November 6th. There are huge risks and huge potential benefits for all manner of uh, innovation and technology, but your honest expectation is that things will be... My expectation is things will be a lot better, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that because one of the points I was making is that the range of possible variation is very large, and that's even limiting myself to the technological revolutions that I've thought about, and it's entirely possible that what will really change the world is something I've never heard of that comes along 15 years from now. Risk and reward of of these various technologies, you made specific uh, note of biotech, nanotech, and artificial intelligence. Could you sort of... Those are the three on my list that could wipe out the human race uh, within well under 100 years. Uh, In certain ways, they could go. But at the same time, uh, biotech could result in people no longer dying of old age. That would be an enormous benefit, especially to those of us who are getting older. Uh, It could result in most people being as happy as quite happy people are. My casual impression is that while how happy people are partly depends on circumstances, it partly depends on personality, and it may well turn out that that's as simple as the level of neurochemicals. Uh, and I was I have an example in the book of a friend of mine who died a few years ago, and he, as far as I, best I can judge, he and his wife were close. It was a happy marriage for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, and then I was at an event his wife was at maybe a year later, and you wouldn't have said that she was a mourning widow. She was, seemed to be, you know, a cheerful person. I think it's not that she didn't love her husband. It's just that she was a cheerful person, and, you know, you're depressed for a while after something like happens that happens and come back. And if it turns out that we can understand enough about that to noticeably raise sort of to eliminate some of the gloom that hangs around some people or let them eliminate it, that would be a pretty big, pretty big improvement. And similarly for other things, that is that uh, I think it's very likely that we would be able to eliminate essentially all genetic diseases and all things of that sort pretty quickly within, again, the next few decades. That would be a big improvement. Uh, You know, if you think about how scary it is to imagine having a child who will never grow up to be an adult, who will be basically a three-year-old all his life, it's it's a horror, at least to me it is, to imagine it. And we can solve that problem. When these types of new technologies have to interact with uh, people's uh, psychological uh, proclivities and systems of law, does that make you less or more confident about these uh, technologies' ability to improve lives? Well, I think certainly there will be, there are, and will be problems with adjusting legal systems and adjusting social customs to change technology, and we've seen that already. That the obvious big case is what we refer to as a sexual revolution, that there's a sense in which the world is drastically different than it was 60 years ago, in that it used to be taken for granted that although some women engaged in premarital sex, very few would admit to doing so. It was a, a it's clearly seen as a wicked thing to do or as a failure of will or something of that sort uh, outside of fairly limited circles. 
now everyone takes it for granted that if, you know, if two people are a couple, they're probably sleeping together. You don't know for sure, but that's the odds. And nobody thinks differently about it, as it were. And I suspect that part of the reason for that was the greatly improved contraceptive technology. There are probably other reasons as well. I've discussed in one of my other books possible explanations of that change in, in sort of sexual patterns and marital patterns. And it's had some bad consequences that uh, a lot more children are growing up without two parents than used to be, and that's related to that. Also good consequences, but uh, certainly it's been a sort of long, slow business adjusting our institutions to, uh, to those changes, and I think that's going to be true of many other things as well. What about the uh, impulse of a lot of people to avoid the kinds of risks that will be associated to, with uh, with new technologies well, that could be exploited by people who want to either control them or yeah. prevent them from coming online. That is, of course, some technologies you can avoid the risk by just choosing not to use the technology. So if you think about things like medical drugs and such, but certainly there will there is and will be political pressure to suppress some technologies. Uh, I don't think. That's going to matter very much in the long run because I think it is very hard to suppress a technology that really many people find useful. In the short run, it certainly may mean uh, people dying who would otherwise live, which I think is already the case that we, you know, we have restrictions on the use of new medical drugs, and they presumably prevent some bad outcomes, but they also prevent some good outcomes, and uh, that's sort of a necessary trade-off. When I talk to uh Robert Laughlin, when he came to talk about his book, uh, The Crime of Reason, he offered a pretty dark uh, picture of the future of creativity uh, interacting with uh, law systems of law, and he argued that law would not really uh, make the types of uh, adaptations to uh, the needs of creativity and, and creation. Well, I don't know. I mean, legal systems do change over time. And also, it's a big world. And if one country's legal system doesn't adapt and another one does, uh, it's becoming increasingly easy to live somewhere else. That one of the less obvious consequences of the rise of the internet is that the more of your life is lived online, the more portable you are. Because if I go off to Paris, I can continue the same conversation I was having with somebody here because both in both cases the conversation was online. Uh, and to the extent that's true, to the extent that what you really want is not a physical location but a network of people, you can keep that network wherever you go. Uh, and therefore, if some countries are acting in a way that don't make them, makes them places you don't want to live in, you can go somewhere else. Talk about artificial intelligence. The uh, what, what are the... What's the risk and promise of artificial intelligence? The promise is having new people of a different sort in the world to interact with. You know, we talk lots about what if we found aliens. We're going to make aliens, very likely. Uh, and I sort of look forward to interacting with that. Uh, there are other promises. One of the things I didn't discuss in the talk but discussed a little bit in the book is the idea of uploading which is the idea that if you understand the human mind well enough, then you might be able to make a computer and, in effect, program it with you. That is to say, copy the software that's currently running on your brain to the computer. And first, that might be a form of immortality, although it's a little ambiguous whether a copy of me is me or not. It might be a way of simply reproducing people who are useful in one way or another to reduce things or talk with or whatever. That would be sort of an interesting. It's also sort of scary, obviously. Uh, and uh, 
in general, obviously, in the, in, the, in the near term, artificial intelligence is going to be a way of doing things better and cheaper, of, you know, making medical care and other things we care about less expensive. The downside is that if we end up with beings that not only are smart but have their own purposes, if we end up with things that really are people, that so that the computer doesn't just say, ask me a question, master. Uh, it says, please do this, or I'll do this for that for you if you'll do that. Then if they're smarter than we are, we have to worry about how they will choose to treat us, and that could be a scary possibility. David D. Friedman is author of the book Future Imperfect, Technology and Freedom in an Uncertain World. You can watch the full book forum at our website, cato.org.